Oh, the voice that he heard, the voice that he heard was unlike any voice he'd ever heard in his entire life. I'm not speaking of the TV show, The Voice. This voice, this voice was authoritative. This voice brought conviction. This voice was inspiring. And the message of this voice, the message of this voice, it came with instruction, definitive instruction. It came with promises. It came with hope. And the message came with security. I mean, talk about hearing voices in your head. I cannot imagine what it was like to have this voice, to have heard this voice, and have that in your head. Growing up, he'd never heard his dad, Tara, ever tell the story of hearing a voice and a message like this. Never. And that's because an event like this never happened to Tara. Not in the city of the Ur of Chaldeans, and not in the city of Haran. If his dad or a forefather of his had heard this voice, well, in my mind, it's likely that their Mesopotamian culture and society would have a completely different story. Different than the story of Nana, the god of the moon, one of the oldest gods in Mesopotamian pantheon that would have been worshipped there. So a big decision is before him now. It's the biggest one of his life. This voice and this message keeps playing again and again and again in his mind. It's there. If he ignores this voice and the message that came with it, he'll likely go on with life. And if he ignores it, our Bible, as we know it, will read very differently. Had he done that? Had he done that, who knows if the nation of Israel would have come about. And therefore, it's doubtful those of you that are just returning from the trip to Israel would have taken that trip. So here he is at the age of 75 years old. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're coming to that. The story of this man's life changes at 75. It changes the course of history for his family. changes the course of history for the nation of Israel. It changes the course of history as our Bible is written. And it changes and sets up what the lineage of our Savior is going to have. For the remaining 100 years of his life that he has left to live, the willingness of this man, the willingness of this man to trust and obey the voice and this message will become and remain one of the greatest stories of faith ever told. It's found in sermon playlists. It's discussed in life group studies. This story, the greatest story of faith in my mind. The voice, uh, well, his name is Yahweh. We've heard of that voice before. The man who will respond to this voice, who heard this by faith and moves forward, his name is Abraham. Maybe you've heard of that name before. And this message is found in the book of Genesis and is summarized in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. I put up Hebrews 11:8 on the screen as it summarizes and captures this for us. By faith, Abraham obeyed where he was called to go, out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. 
faith and obedience I see here. Reminds me of a boardwalk and park place. Remember that? You land on that, faith and obedience, you buy that up right now. For Abraham, I want to submit to you, he's got to move out, if we're using that analogy of monopoly, he's got to move out from free parking. And he's got to go where he doesn't really know where he's going to go. That's yet to be shown. That's yet to be told to him. This place, it comes with a guaranteed inheritance from Yahweh if he's willing to go. But Abraham will have to go on God's word. Nothing more than God's word and nothing less than God's word. It's what John Calvin calls the verbum nudum. That's Latin for naked word of God. That's all he has. That's the voice and the message that comes with it. It's the naked word of God. As Hebrews 11.8 shows us, we know how the story ends for Abraham. He's in the hall of faith in that chapter. It's there for us to read today. It's there and it ends in that way and we know that of him trusting God at his word. Hebrews 11.8 tells us that Abraham had a faith that was willing, that was willing, that he was willing to follow God. The word willing or will is commonly used in conversations throughout our lives. You've used this. Will you do this or will you do that? Are you willing to do this? Are you been asked, are you willing to do that? I remember as a kid, I got asked many times by my parents, will you clean your room? I remember thinking in my years as a teenager and wanting to go out with my friends, I'd go to them and say, are you willing to give me some money so I can have fun? To the moment that I remember very distinctly on one particular night in my 20s, when I got down on my knee and I said, will you marry me to Pam? It's a question that we ask of willing or will. And, and this word, it has this question that's asking another person to decide on and initiate the action. And the expectation, the hope at the very least, is that the answer will be yes. That the answer will be yes. In the story we're going to look at today, God comes to Abraham, not with a question, but a command. And the command is, go. He's to go. Very simple, very instructive. If Abraham is willing to go, be obedient, trust God at his word, then what the scripture tells us is that God will initiate his promise, his protection, his security, for Abraham and his family. As we look at the text here in just a moment, what we're not going to see is Abraham's verbal or Abraham's verbal response back to God. What we simply see is him responding just with action to the command of God telling him to go. For us who claim to have faith, which I would guess that most of us would claim to have faith in Christ, I want to submit to you, this is a good reminder that proof of our faith is not just with words, but it's with action. So let's jump into this story. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we look at the story of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. 
Genesis 12, you might see above verse 1, it says the call of Abram. I thought his name was Abraham. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country, and on the east of Bethel pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. Genesis chapter 12 Verses 1 to 8. There's a little bit of background here I just want to share with you. Abram had lived in the Ur of Chaldeans, and then he lived in Haran. The Ur of Chaldeans was an affluent city of uh, commerce and business going on there. Uh, lots of extensive trade. What's interesting is you look back in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31. They moved from the Ur of Chaldeans. Look at verse 31 of, Hebrew, of uh, Genesis chapter 11. It says, Terah, that's Abram's father, took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, the daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went to, to forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So here they are now in Haran. Haran was known for the worship of Nana the moon god. This is a polytheistic society, a polytheistic culture that Abram is growing up in, that he's been raised in. Keep that in mind. Abram, this name, we're going, wait a minute, I thought it was Abraham. I get that confused. Why does he have a different name here? Well, here, versus where we see in Genesis 17, that's where God instructs Abram at 75 years old, to be circumcised. I think he felt that when that happened. He's circumcised at this point, and then at that point, God changes his name to Abraham and establishes the Abrahamic covenant and ultimately the nation of Israel through Abraham. So Abram's upbringing by his father Terah would have involved the worship of idols and the god Nana. Now, I don't know about you, but as I grew up in the church, I don't remember everyone, anyone ever telling my Sunday school teacher ever telling me that, that Abram grew up worshiping other gods. He was Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons was Father Abraham, right? You know that song. But I was never told that this was his background. I thought he was a Bible-carrying man of God all along throughout his entire life. 
And yet here he is, and the culture that he's been raised in is not that at all. He comes from a pagan background of other gods being worshipped. Joshua 24, 2 affirms this. It says, Long ago your ancestors, including Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. That includes Abraham. Abram was a worshiper of other gods until he has this voice come to him and speak to him with a message. So what we need to recognize here is that the will of God on Abram's life will require faith. Not just talking about it, but action. He'll have to respond with action, not words. He won't be able to pretend he has faith in God. He, he can't pretend that where he's to go. His life will require living proof. Changes in his life are going to have to be real. I I share that because, again, keep in mind, if you grew up in the church and you say, oh, I'm going to go do this for God, well, it blends in a little bit more. But when you are leaving a country, a city, and going to another place where there's other gods being worshipped, and you're going to follow this God who just spoke to you, has not appeared to you at least this point and tells you just to go. That's going to take some amazing faith to leave all what you've been brought up with, all that you've known from you, your father, your forefathers, and to leave all that and to go and to respond by faith. As I said moments ago, if Abram will go, then God will initiate his promise his provision and his protection for Abram. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God says, I will five different times. Look back at verse 1. God says, go forth from your country, your kindred, and your father's house, the land that I will show you. So he's not showing them to him now. There's no brochure handed to him. He can't Google it, can't see it. Verse 2, it says, God says, I will make of you a great nation. Second promise, I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Third promise, I will bless those who bless you. And the part that I think I would have liked if I was told this, what God said, verse 3, and whoever dishonors you, I will curse. <laughs> I'm like, I like that. I've got some security here. I've got some protection. And so here are the promises that God says that he will do. All that Abram is asked to do is to go. The burden that goes with the story is carried by God. God has a lot to to live up to for his promises. Think again. Realize there's never been a God who's come to him and said that he'll do all this for him. But this God, this voice comes to him and tells him, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I will stand against and curse those who curse you. And now you've got to take that by faith, strictly by faith. So I thought about this. We come to the communion table, and it's the new covenant, right, in Christ. What are we to remember? What are we to remember what Christ did? Our response is just to go and come and take and receive it and remember. 
Remember what Christ did at the cross of Calvary. So there's a parallel here of what God does for people, what he does for you, what he did for Abram. So for Abram, his action is recorded in Genesis 12, and it's why he's listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, because of how he responded. So how did Abram prove his faith was genuine? Remember I said we don't see a response here of words back to God? We just simply see actions that Abram carries out in his life. And then the thought I have was, how can you prove that your faith is genuine? Because I'm guessing you would claim to have that. So I put it this way, got faith, Abram, prove it. A number of years ago, there was this commercial by the milk producers that said, got milk, do you remember that? And then it went on, got this, got this. I mean, everybody jumped on that idea for got this, got that. Well, I went back to that as the idea is got faith. You got faith, Abram? Really? You're going to have to prove it, buddy. You're going to have to prove it not with words, but with action. So some steps that he takes to prove his faith. The first one is this. Abram went where God told him to go. Abram went where God told him to go. Notice here. He says, go, verse 1, from your country. And it says, I will show you where you're to go. So Aram is going because God told him, but he doesn't know where yet. All he knows is that God has come to him. What we see in Scripture is Abram's introduced to Yahweh. He's told to go. As I was thinking about this, I thought this question came to my mind. It was this. At this point in time in Abram's life, and where you are today in your journey with God, you have a Bible. Many of you have been walking with Jesus for decades. You go and read your Bible. You come to church. You go to life groups. You memorize scripture. So here's my question. At that point in Abram's life, when all he's told is to go to a land that God will show him and he'll be blessed and he'll be a blessing, curse those who curse you, and he says, I'll show you. So here's my question. Who knows more about God? You today or Abram on this moment that God says, go. You figured that out, right? You know a whole lot more about God. You have his whole word. And yet, we have his whole word. We have other believers we can talk to. And I would confess to you that I fall short on my faith. And yet, I have so much more that I can know about God. So for Abram to step out, And go where God tells him to go is an amazing measure of faith. He's got no Bible. He's got no church. He's got no life group he's a part of that he can discuss this with anybody. He's got to just go. Again, that's why John Calvin calls this in Latin, the verbum nudum, the naked word of God. Go, Abraham. Abraham, it says in verse 4, went. Where? God says, I'll show you. Trust me. I'll show you. That's all he knows. All Abraham knows is the voice of God and the message of promise, provision, and protection. You got faith, Abraham? You're going to have to prove it by going wherever God tells you to go. Here's another step he took to prove his faith. Abraham forsook all other gods in a secure lifestyle. He forsook, turned away from all other gods in a secure lifestyle. If you look back at verses 2 and 3, 
we see that he's forsaking, he's to go, right? In verse 1 and in verse 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation and bless you. But notice also here, as we look at this passage, it's interesting as it lays out here. It says, and your father's house or household. We'll come back to that in a moment. As Joshua 24, 2 informs us, Abram comes from a polytheistic society. So his family likely would have had a family God that they would have worshipped. They believe that, hey, if we honor and pay homage and do all that and worship of this God, our household will be better off if we do that. That's the idea. So these five promises that God makes to Abram is all the security Abram has now as he leaves and goes forth. How do I know this? Well, culturally, scripturally, it sets it up for us. It says, leave your father's house to the land that I will show. So what does that mean he's leaving his father's house? Well, culturally, it means he's leaving the land behind. So if he's a farmer, he's leaving the land. If you're a farmer, the land is your livelihood. That produces your crops, cares for your livestock. That's security. If you're in the city, then you're leaving your status, your political position or power that you might have. It means leaving with the father's house your inheritance, In other words, think of it today as if those of you who have a 401k or some sort of savings or annuity, forsake all that and just trust God to be the provider now. That's what it means for him and his culture to leave his father's household. Wow, that's going to take faith because he's forfeiting all the security he's all known for his entire life. You got faith, Abraham? Prove it but forsaking all of the gods in your secure lifestyle that you have. Here's another step of action, of faith he took. Action as in Abram worshiped God and God alone. It says in verses 7 and 8 that Abram went and he built an altar to the Lord. Verse 8, he builds a second altar for the Lord, and he calls upon the name of the Lord. So he's worshiping God. So not one, but two altars for worshiping Yahweh are made by Abram. We get this word worship from two words put together, worth and ship. Was a ship worthy to be trusted to sail upon? And the idea of worship coming from those two words is we view that God is worthy of our worship, that God is worthy of building not one, but two altars as Abram did. The first altar in my mind is built out of thanksgiving and praise to God. He's just giving thanks, and he's praising who God is and what he's doing. The second altar, as I look at it, is an altar built out of adoration and reverence for God, because it says he calls upon the name of the Lord. So it's out of this reverence, adoration for God. Note again that the test here doesn't record Abram saying anything. It's just him doing, building these altars. The fourth and final step I want to submit to you that Abram's got faith is Abram became a witness for the one true God. He became a witness for the one true God. If you look at verses 5 and 6, it talks about him landing in the land of Canaan. In the land of Canaan. When he gets there, he goes to Shechem, and he's there, and he builds his tent in Bethel and Ai between there. Those are significant meanings behind all that. So as Abram traveled, we can see who joined him, right? Sarai, his wife, Lot, his nephew, his possessions, perhaps that's livestock and people, perhaps those are people that are now believing in his God, in Abram's God, to follow him. 
In other words, you couldn't miss Abram and his family and his entourage. He would have stood out in the land of Canaan. It's not like he snuck in with the minivan and, and it's just another vehicle driving by. No, he's got an entourage that's here and everyone goes, hey, this guy, we can't mistake who this guy is. And then to add to it, Abram's altars, he builds two of them. And that communicates to a pagan society in Canaan who are worshiping other gods that his worship was for Yahweh and no other God, not including the God in Canaan that you guys are worshiping. I'm not going to worship your God and join in with your culture. This altar is built alone for the worship of God. So it's going to be a witness to people to see that. Abram's tent communicated to the Canaanites that he was a stranger and he did not belong to this world. This world was not his home. So Abram's faith in Yahweh is something he's definitely got. He's proven it by being willing to go where God tells him to go. He's proven it that he's forsaken all his gods and the security that his life would have brought him in that culture, forsaking his father's household. He's worshiping God and God alone with these altars. And he's being a witness verbally, non-verbally, by his lifestyle saying, his life speaks. There's a story going on here. So that's Abram's story. But what about your story? The way I put it was, got faith, then prove it. <laughs> if you claim to have faith, and I believe you do, how do you prove that? What are steps you can take to prove that, to show that that's real, that that's genuine? I want to submit to you that your faith is not proven by the size of your Bible and all the study notes you've got written in it. That's a good thing, but it doesn't prove necessarily your faith. It's not proven by a bumper sticker on your car, because I'm pretty sure I've been cut off by somebody who had a Christian bumper sticker on their car. It's not proven by your theological vocabulary, even though that's great to have. So how can it be proven? Let me give you some four action steps that you can be taking, perhaps have taken, and should be continuing to take as you go forward. First one is this. Follow Christ wherever he leads you. Follow Christ wherever he leads you. That is so easy to type out on my keyboard, but man, is it a whole nother deal to live out, right? This means daily with people you encounter to love. God led me to that person. Wherever I was going that particular day, it's an opportunity to love them, to share, to show the love of Christ. Follow Christ wherever he leads you, including the trials you face. And by trusting him, you endure. Follow Christ wherever he leads you to the opportunities you are given to serve someone else who's in need. It's simply saying, follow God. Let me show you by what I do, how I do and carry this out, God. How can you know if, you're, if you are following Christ? Well, in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, you live a life of repentance. There's no longer walking in the darkness, no longer chasing after other gods as Abram did, right? You now turn to God and God alone, and you follow wherever Christ leads you. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. Ah, oh, the voice of God. And I know them, and they follow me. Follow me by faith, like Abram. Follow Christ by faith. I remember when I was in seminary, there was this book that I had to purchase for one of my classes in the bookstore. And I remember seeing it and looking at it. It's a book by Eugene Peterson, and it said, um, 
and said, a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. I remember thinking for a moment there, I'm starting off in seminary. I feel this call to God. What have I gotten myself into? A long obedience in the same direction. It's convicting. To walk by faith, to trust God, to do that. To follow Christ wherever he leads you. If you want to do that, you've probably got faith to continue to do that. Here's another action step to take. Surrender to Christ whatever the cost. Surrender to Christ whatever the cost. Again, something that's easy to type out, but to live out, whew, it's a whole different world. You know, when I became a Christian at age eight, I don't remember anyone telling me that um, I had to surrender everything to Christ. I remember being told you need to surrender to your sin and surrender to your life, but I didn't grasp that it meant everything, that Christ, I surrender to you completely, whatever the cost. No one told me then or has told me since that I can remember that, hey, if you're going to be trusting the Lord through giving, you might find at times that your bank account, your checking account is now down to double digits. And you're going, wow, I got to trust Christ, surrender to Christ, whatever the cost. God says, test me. Let me, show, let me prove myself to you in that way. You know, I've come to learn as I've grown in my walk with Jesus that Scripture speaks about the cost. I just wasn't maybe reading it. Romans 12.1 talks about being a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. In other words, if I'm alive, I need to live as a sacrifice. I need to surrender to Christ whatever the cost. In a movie or in, in a, if you saw a picture or something on TV, wherever it is and around the world, and you saw somebody doing this, you automatically know what they're doing. It's a universal sign of surrender. <laughs> we sometimes do that in worship. We'll see people's hands raised as a, as a, as a way just to distribute or to show that, hey, God, I'm just surrendering to you. I do that myself from time to time. And so the thought I had in my mind is surrendering Christ, whatever the cost. In essence, in my life, do I put my hands up as I begin my day and go, God, I surrender to you, whatever the cost and to live that way, surrender to him, whatever the cost. By faith, that's going to be there. You have to prove that, that we're surrendered to him by how we live our lives. Here's a third action step. Worship Christ as your Lord. Worship Christ as your Lord. And I think that learning about Christ as Lord is a process. I think it comes with maturity and a deeper understanding of Christ. I mean, we see this in the disciples in Matthew 14, 33, when the winds calm down, they're out on a boat with Jesus in the Sea of Galilee. And it says this, they worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. They've been in a boat before with Jesus and he calmed the waves and the storm down. And they said to one another, wow, even, even the wind and the waves obey him. But they've progressed now in their faith and understanding who God is. And at this moment, they say, truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are Lord. It's a process. It's a maturing and understanding of who God is. 1 Peter 3.15 instructs us to set apart Christ as Lord. 
Set apart Christ as Lord. It's more than going to church. It's more than reading your Bible. It's a set apart Christ as Lord. It's a living sacrifice. The truth is your worship of Christ as Lord grows and matures and becomes greater and greater with time. It's the proof of your faith. In this idea of worshiping Christ as your Lord. As a youth pastor, I had a couple of non-negotiables with my students. And they knew I meant business with them. One of them was, no one talks when we read scripture. The second non-negotiable was, no one talks when we pray. No one talks when we read scripture. No one talks when we pray. Why? Because that's what a teenager is going to ask, right? And I said, the reason why is because you don't have anything more important to say than what God has to say. And the reason why I don't want you talking in prayers is because you don't have anything more important than what we're saying to God. That's seeing Christ as Lord. The same way for us, we have to go, hey, if my faith is genuine, if I want to prove my faith, then I've got to surrender to Christ. I've got to worship Christ. I've got to follow Christ as Lord. The last step I want to offer you today is witness for Christ as your story. Witness for Christ as your story. If you've got faith, prove it by witnessing for Christ as your story. This is both verbal and nonverbal in your witness. Uh, if we were to sit down and I was to read something about you, I'd figure I would know a little bit about your life. I would know your vocation. Uh, maybe I would learn about your hobbies, your family, your interests, or your life experiences. All this that's your story. You know where that story shows up? And where it's going to show up? <laughs> it's going to show up at your memorial service. There'll be a eulogy written about you. And it's at that point in time that there's going to be a story told about your life. How you followed Christ, who your family was, what your vocation was, what your involvement with Christ was about. That just comes out. That's part of the story. The fact is, Christ will be your story or he won't be. He's either going to be the story that we all come back to, like it is with Abram, or it's not going to be. It's your choice by faith. In Acts 4.20, it's interesting in the witness for Christ is their story. We read that when Peter and John were instructed to keep quiet about Jesus, this was their reply. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's their story. We can't help but speaking about what we've seen and heard. That's going to be our story. In 1 John 1, 1 through 3, John says of Christ, We have seen him and we testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life. That's his story. It's about Christ. Verbally, non-verbally, it's a witness for Christ. So what's your story today? If you were to stop and think about that, hey, what's my story as of right now that's being told about me, that I'm writing, if you will? If you claim to be a follower of Christ, I would ask, was there be enough evidence to prove it? Let me, let me close with this. A number of years ago, I, I found out that I was going to be on a jury. Now, understand that I'd never been on a jury before. Called to jury duty multiple times, but never been put on a jury. So when I was called to go down for federal jury duty in downtown San Diego to the big building, the whole bit, I thought, this is crazy. Why now this? 
My name gets called to go down there. I go down there, and they are reading off the cases, and they start reading off names. And sure enough, William March. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Like, my name actually got called. This has never happened before. We go upstairs outside the courtroom, 40 or so of us standing outside. They're going, we're going to go ahead and read off the names of the people here, and uh, those will be our order of jurors. I'm thinking, great. I'll just go look out the window. First name they call, William March. I'm juror number one? Are you kidding me? So I go in and get put on this case for three days. Criminal case and all that. I just want to submit to you this. After about lunchtime, I already knew what my decision was going to be (laughs) based upon the evidence presented to me. It was overwhelmingly convincing to me. But, of course, there's a defense. The third day comes along, and they give their story, and I'm just thinking, "Uh, nope. (laughs) It's just overwhelming that that the verdict's going to be on this person. And I just ask you to think for a moment today. Again, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you claim to to be willing to follow Christ, you're going to have to prove your faith. You're going to have to prove it in such a way where you're following Christ wherever he leads you to go. You're going to have to prove it of surrendering to Christ, whatever the cost. You're going to have to prove it by worshiping Christ, by being a witness for Christ, with Christ as your Lord, with witnessing as your story that goes on. And I'm just challenging you to think, is there enough evidence? Is it going to be overwhelming to prove that? If the answer to, your, to these questions is yes, this is how my faith is going to be. Well, I just have one statement for you. Prove it. 